One thing on my kids, we always, I don't care what restaurant we ever go into, there are three things they have to notice and tell me about when you go in there. What's the temperature like? What's the lighting like? What's the music like? Those three things will determine whether you're going to like that experience or not before you even sit down. Another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series returns today as Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners sits down with Ray Washburn of Charter Holdings and the M Crowd Restaurant Group. Born and raised in DFW, Ray graduated from Southern Methodist University, where two of his three children now go to school, and got his commercial real estate license at 19. He now co-owns several Dallas institutions, including local favorites Miko Cena and Taco Diner, Katy Trail Ice House, and of course, Highland Park Village, which he purchased with his wife, sister-in-law, and brother-in-law for $170 million in 2009. In his interview, Ray dishes on his early entrepreneurial ventures, including the soda machines he owned near the SMU campus during his college days, how he raised Highland Park Village's luxury profile, and how he can quickly judge the quality of a restaurant before even trying the food. He also talked about his experience as a member of the Trump administration's Overseas Private Investment Corporation and how his work gained bipartisan support in Washington. Ray has been a mainstay on one of our other podcast series, the CRE Executive Roundtable. And by the way, there's a new episode of that coming soon as well. And provided tremendous insight into how the local restaurant industry pivoted from dine-in to takeout during the pandemic. I've personally learned a lot from listening to Ray over the last few years, and I can't wait for you to hear his conversation with Bill. Subscribe to TrackCast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media for the latest from around the Real Estate Council. If you'd prefer to watch Ray and Bill's interview, you can do so over on our YouTube channel. You can find links to everything, our podcasts and social media handles, our YouTube channel, the first two Legends episodes of the new season with Craig Hall and Lucy Billingsley, and all of season one in the show notes. We'd like to thank the Dallas Business Journal for sponsoring our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. Visit the Dallas Business Journal online at bizjournals.com backslash Dallas for the latest breaking business news and exclusive reporting on the hottest topics fueling North Texas's growth. Subscribe to their email products, including local business news updates in the mornings and afternoons, and dozens of popular topics from their vast national network of business journals publications. And for more interviews with DFW business leaders and personalities, subscribe to their weekly Texas Business Minds podcast, available wherever you download podcasts. Now, Here's Bill Cauley in conversation with Ray Washburn of Charter Holdings and the M Crowd Restaurant Group, another legend of commercial real estate, right here on TrackCast. Ray, I appreciate you doing this. You know, one of the one of my favorite parts of being Trek chairman was getting to know you better. And one of the things that I enjoy is because uh, I mean we've known each other, but haven't known each other well. Uh, I'm going to be your neighbor, which is mm-hmm. kind of exciting, but um, is I really think you're creative. I mm-hmm. I have watched and we've kind of looked at a few things together, haven't done anything yet, but I really uh, admire the way you kind of dissect a deal. I think you're very thoughtful in what you do and very creative. So I appreciate you taking the time 
And I would like to make this as much as an open dialogue as possible because people are just kind of want to know more about you. So personal, tell us about wife, kids, family. Sure. Well, I grew up in Dallas. I tell people I've lived in the same zip code my entire life. I went to Highland Park, SMU, lived back in Highland Park. So uh, my wife, Heather, is uh, and I live close to the village and we've got three children Two boys at SMU right now and a senior girl at Hockaday, and she'll be going to SMU next year. So we're, we're big ponies. Any of your kids have any uh, thoughts of being like in resident in, in real estate or, or restaurants or anything that you do? Sure. Well, you know, they've kind of grown up, as many of your listeners will know, when you're an entrepreneur, you don't leave the office at five o'clock. It carries with you 24 yeah. seven and on the weekend. So they hear a lot and you know, since the day they were born, they've been dragged around the construction sites. They've been dragged around the restaurants and things. So I, I think they both, all three of them have a great interest in it. And it really comes from the uh, transparency that I use of all of them. I mean, I let them sit on investment committee meetings. They get to read leasing reports. Anything they want, they have access to looking at. They look at sales reports from restaurants. And so I think that has spurred you know, a fire yeah. in all three of them without it being shoved on them that they have access to it and can look at. And, you know, who couldn't be excited about wanting to go in the real estate business or the restaurant business? Exactly. And do you think out of college, they'll come directly into the business or do you know? You know, we haven't talked about it yet. My yeah. oldest is a senior and they, um, you know, they, they really need to go out and do what the, what they want to do and, and go after their passion. I, we're not forcing them in any business, but, you know, if they have a fire for it, my oldest is a uh, real estate major and finance major at SMU and loves the classes with Chuck Dennis and yeah, I think the, and, and Joseph and well, all the rest well, of Joseph's them. done this. They phenomenal. do an incredible job of, of really, you know, exciting the kids yeah. on the way they teach. So yeah. SMU's done a great job. You know, when I went to SMU, I was a history and English major. I didn't even take a single business class because I was paying my way through college. And I, I did three things. I installed carpet for freshman girls every year. And so I, I made enough money in the first week to pay for an entire year of college. And then to pay for my way during college, I had 50 vending machine, Coke machines, and the apartment complexes around SMU. And each machine, I'd make about a hundred bucks a week selling Cokes. And that, you know, I was making... So you were always an entrepreneur from oh, day yeah. one. Oh yeah. And so how did you morph from history major to real estate restaurant? How did you get there? Well, it was interesting. My mother went to Cornell. My father went to Williams College. You know, they were very liberal arts minded. And, and uh, I mean, growing up after church on Sundays, we'd go down to the Dallas Museum of Art. I mean, I, I grew up in very much of it. My dad was a banker, but w wasn't really into business that much. He was, he loved to read. And so that kind of spurred that interest. So when I went to college, I was working all day anyway. And I went to work for Joe Foster Company as kind of an intern as well. Back. Sure, you know, 1980. Sure. And, and so and Terry Darrow and all yeah. those guys. Uh, so I really wanted to expand my thought process and my thinking. So I took a lot of classes in art history. Uh, you know, I love to read. I love to write. And so I always encourage my kids and, and people going to college. I said, you know, when you get out, people want to hire people that think. And coming out and just saying I've got an accounting degree or a marketing degree or something. You're going to get retrained by no matter who you go work for. Right. And it used to be, you know, the best people in real estate were people that had trained at IBM or Xerox or somewhere else. So 
they never knew they wanted to go in the real estate business. They know they wanted to be in sales. And so, but they missed the whole opportunity in college to learn about, you know, the, the greater world that's out there. And so that's why I didn't take any business classes because I wanted to learn. I did take one. I took a construction class because one summer I worked in construction because I wanted to learn the construction business. And so I took a class by an old, real old construction guy and I learned so much about how things are put together and built. So I kind of put that in my history. Department. So, and did you morph kind of into the retail side of real no. estate first or? No, what happened is, so as I'm graduating, I was on a, it's a long story, but I ended up meeting a guy named Bill Solomon, who is a chairman and CEO of a company called Austin Industries, sure. Austin Commercial, big contract. And he asked me to come work for him when I got out of college. Literally the day I graduated on Friday, I started with him on Monday. In Austin Industries, this is at the time, 1983, Dallas is booming. Right. They were they had just built the Bank of America Plaza downtown. They built Campbell Center, and they were trying to get more in the commercial business. But out-of-town contractors are coming to town, investing, buying projects from developers by investing in them. So they would get the construction contract. And it's the old saying, don't, don't drink the whiskey you're selling the Indians, right? And so <laughs> they got in, into realizing they had to go into it. So he hired me because he knew I was an entrepreneur to go call on, I was 24 years old. And so we met with like, we ended up doing deals with Bill Criswell who built 8080 Central and several other people, Sterling Projects. And we built Sterling Plaza and Preston Center, built a building called 5429 LBJ next to the Galleria. Sure. And those are my projects. Lost money in all of them because <laughs> the market turned in the 80s, and you know, we right. funded RTC days, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, phase one, 880 Central, as everyone knows, is a massive success for Criswell. Unfortunately, we were the money in phase two, which is now a Chick fil A ground lease. Exactly. And that was supposed to be a companion tower to 880 Central. We also, so I learned a lot in those three years I worked at Austin in how to relate the finance side, the partnerships we put together, the creative side. But also, since I was too young to get in trouble by kissing any debt, that's when the when the market rolled and every you know there was blood in the streets. I knew enough to get in trouble, but I didn't have any money to get into trouble. So right. what I did next is I let Austin had a paving company called Austin Paving that did all these subdivisions in the suburbs. So I would sit at our old offices on Stimmons Freeway and our paving company. What would happen is they would get an SNL, like I'll never forget, Silverado Savings out of Denver or Vernon Savings or Sunbelt Savings Don Dixon. would fund all the Murray Savings, all these subdivisions. Well, they all went broke um, before any homes were built, but all the streets and utilities were in. And Austin had a mechanics lien on all these projects. Unfortunately, mechanics lien isn't worth anything if the senior debt isn't paid first. And so these subdivisions that they would cost twenty dollars to $25,000 per lot put on the ground, well, Austin couldn't perfect the contractor's lien because no one yeah. knew where the bottom was. Right. So I went to the RTC and I started buying these lots back for five dollars to $10,000 a lot. And I ended up buying several thousand lots. And here at this point, I'm 27, 28 years old. And so I'm buying for, you know, 20 cents on the dollar broke subdivisions. So when you did that, did you go out and raise money to do it or did you? Use no, we're, we're, who, yeah, from, yeah, I, I'd, I'd raised from some people, but my yeah. big hit really was I started doing those. Banks realized I could perform with RTC. That, yeah. Back then they were called special servicers, bonnet, exactly. right. you know, all those guys. Yeah. 
Blue Bonnet. Yeah. <laughs> you remember all these uh, Samco and all these different yeah, ones? I was there. Um, the best thing that the RTC did, and people don't realize it, one of the few things the government has ever done right is they had an end date for the RTC. And it was December 31st, either 1990 or 1991, and the RTC had to be out of business. Right. And so what ended up happening is they took back hundreds of billions of dollars of properties around the country, but they had to have them all liquidated by one date and then it was over. Instead of being this overhang of value or someone thinking they drag it out, it, it was finally like, let's just dump it all, find a floor for prices, mm -hmm. and then prices could come back. So going into the last month of that, I got a call from a guy I went to SMU with and said, hey, how would you like to buy all the land around the lake in Las Colinas? 68 acres of land that South Incorporation, South and Financial, yeah. had lost to Republic Bank, which became NCMB, yeah. which the special servicer. So I bought it for $2 a foot, 68 acres. And I, the only few people in, in town had money. Lamar Hunt backed me to buy all this acreage. So I bought it. And then just started cutting it up with all that land across from William Square, all those yep. hotels. I sold a big chunk of it. Gene Phillips bought some. I sold mm -hmm. to different people. And anyway, that's was a pretty good run for me on that piece. So you're off and running. Then. I was at that point. I'm off and running. And and but that and the subdivisions. And what I did on the subdivisions was I'd buy them, you know, for five to ten thousand a lot. And then I'd find a small home builder. Remember, all the home builders went broke too. People right. forget that. So you would you subordinate a lot and let them go. Uh, I, I would just pull a con. I, I would sell them, let's say, fifty lots at twenty thousand a lot, but they only have to take down five at a time. Got it. And it didn't really matter because I bought them so cheap. Right. I just could roll it out. So awesome. I miss those days. Yeah. I don't no, realize that, how good those that, days that were. That was the best buying opportunity I oh. think ever. People don't realize when the history of that's written in the future. Yeah. There is nothing that you. Every single person that bought anything in those days made money. I remember selling a building at Keller Springs in the Tollway, the two half moon buildings yeah. there, for ten dollars a foot. It was a brand new building in shell with sheetrock and lighting and every stack on the floor, ten bucks a foot. Yeah. And uh They thought uh, they were paying too much. Right. Right. Because <laughs> you didn't have any tenants. Right. Well, no, everybody was worried that it would never recover. That's right. And I think after that cycle, that's one thing that I know it's always gonna recover. You just never know when, but but it's going to come back. It always will come back. Yeah. Okay. So what you're best known for, one of the things I think, two things are Mi Casina and obviously Highland Park Village. Mm -hmm. So Highland Park Village. Sure. Uh, I admire what you've done here. I think um, your vision, your creativity, everything you've done here, it, you know, I think a lot of people thought you might have been overpaying when you did it, mm -hmm. but nobody had the vision you had. Mm -hmm. So I would love five minutes on like what your thought was going in, you know, it's irreplaceable real estate, mm -hmm. but did you always have a view of where you were going to end up or has that just kind of evolved? Well, as I said earlier, I lived in the same zip code my whole life. Right. And so I grew up in the Holland Park village. I was a tenant here for 20 years before with me casino. And what I, it's a long story on how it came to me, but it wasn't being, it wasn't on the market. The Millers had selectively showed it to people out of market you yeah. know, to buy it, but it wasn't in any kind of package. And when I had the opportunity to look at it, at the pricing that we looked at, it did look like a big number, but no one, it's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys. You, everyone wants to own the Dallas Cowboys, but you know Jerry Jones will never sell it. So you never even think about right. potential. And that same, I think every real estate person in Dallas 
would have loved to own the Holland Park Village. No one ever thought the Millers would ever sell it. Right. But that remember, that was a time when Lehman Brothers was going bankrupt, Bear Stearns was going bankrupt. No one could get any financing. And so that's another reason, especially in the Dallas market, everyone was scared. Everyone yeah. pulled the horns in. So being Mikasini here, I realized over the time period that CapEx hadn't been reinvested back into the village over the years. Things like sewer lines, trees, different landscaping, just a lot of stuff hadn't been done. And the rental rates were incredibly cheap. The rental rates when I bought it, the average was $36 a foot. Okay. The reason was the previous owner didn't want to give TI. They'd rather give you cheap rent and you pay for your own TI. Right. So when I built Mikasina here, I beat out everybody else because I just took it as is. Right. They didn't give me any TI dollars without, but a lot of tenants wouldn't come in without getting TI. So I think a lot of deals were, were kind of lost. And so when I bought it, I knew it needed a major uh, TLC right. to it. So the day we bought it, um, well, I mean, leading up to it, two or three weeks beforehand, it was, things were dirty. Windows were dirty. There were bird things on the awnings and stuff. And, and I was like, well, why isn't this cleaned up? And I asked the manager, he said, well, it's a tenant's responsibility to take care of their own storefront, their own awnings and stuff. So we went out and bought a power washer. And the day we bought it, the next morning, before the tenant showed up, we had every storefront power washed. We had every awning clean. We'd replaced all the plants and the tenant showed up the next day and they knew a new sheriff was in town that we were reinvesting into the center. So mm -hmm. I I knew, first of all, it needed a big cleanup. Right. And so we started that and then we started investing into infrastructure. All the trees you see in the parking lot, I planted all those within the first 30 days of owning the center. Mm -hmm. Those things started sending a marker out to the community that you know, things were changing. Then we embarked on a, a marketing program. They had a halftime marketing person before that. We now have eight people in a marketing department today. Do you really? And eight so people? we put out, started putting out fashion magazines and a lot of things, really not to the Dallas customer, it was to the New York customer. Right. And our customer in New York was the real estate and CEOs of the biggest brands to know we were serious about being in the top rung. Now, I did inherit some good things. We had, you know, Hermes was here. Chanel, we had some high end tenants. So we decided we're just going to go for the top, right? you know, the best of the best. And did you start moving rents day one? You know, it's funny. The first Banana Republic was in here paying 35 bucks a foot. And they had 8,000 feet yeah. between the theater and, yeah. and uh, Honor Bar. First thing we did was they came to us and they wanted their rent knocked knock down 10% because the economy was bad. And right. I was like, no, no, no. You guys are going the wrong way on this one. Right. And so we didn't renew their lease and we cut it up in the five spaces. And originally, we initially put the first space out at $50 and that hit. And then the next space we put out at six. We kept testing the higher end of the market. And it was interesting what we found when we finally hit around $100 a foot, which is about a year later, it went from the real estate department of the high end, uh, uh, you know, uh, tenants to the CEO. Because they're like, wait, how does this guy go from 30 to 100? Right. And the head of the real estate department of you know, these big brands will walk in the CEO and said, if you want to be there. And so they want to come meet with us and say, well, you know, right. how can you possibly ask that? And we showed them what all we were doing and it helped. My brother-in-law, who a lot of people know, named Stephen Summers, sure. just really fell in love with marketing to high-end retail. So he spent a huge amount of time in New York, 
Milan, Paris, the fashion shows, and really most of the high-end fashion brands, whether it's a Beretta, a Chanel, Goyard, they're all owned by families. They want to do business with families. Got it. And so versus Simon or Taubman or the big malls. So that's one thing the Nashers have done a great job with at North Park. They're yeah. family to family. And we're family to family. And so Stephen did a great job of really bonding with these high-end. So did, you moved rents from 36 to 100 bucks in the first year. Yeah. Now we're at over 300. You're at 300. Yeah. And Our last you, deal was at 300. Are you, are you giving finish up? We'll, uh, we'll white shell. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we don't have to. You right. know, we, we get it at right. that point. But, right. you know, this, in the next two weeks, we're, right now we're, what, mid-September and October, Rolex will open, Van Cleef will open up. We've got Peter Millar is going to do one of their. That's the other thing. We've got, we have a balance here we have to maintain. And since we're family owned. I think that's one thing you do really well. So yeah. you, you, you go pick who you want in here. Yeah, well, like, that's right. And since we're not selling the center. Right. We plan on this being a multi-generational hold. We prefer to do very short-term leases. Really? As short as we can, because I'm not so sure that brand's going to be hot 10 years from now. Right. Or 20 years. So if they're not, you can move them out and replace them, them with something that's more important. And so we... Between me, Casina, and going down the anthropology, that's all hometown retailers. People not, might not realize that you walk down there, it goes me, Casina, Madison, Padley's, yeah. the Rose, Dino's, all the way down. So that's when people walk in here, those are all one-of-a-kind stores. Yeah. Then we mix in the high-end brands. Then we have things like the barber shop. You know, people really can't pay rent. Dino's, a cobbler. Dino's is great that, he, that you've kept them. But if I was a REIT trying to get the highest, squeeze the highest rents out of everything, I end up getting higher rents from the few at the top, which balance out because I do lower rents for some of the others that we need to have. So you, so you get these guys that are coming in and spending big money on finish out to do short-term leases because they want to be here. They want to be here. And, yeah. you know, some of them, you know, if they put huge money on, or if it's a brand, I know will be here long-term, yeah. I'll do that. But, you know, the smaller kind of startups, what we prefer to do, the shorter yeah, it is we can. Fun. And so, uh, anyway, that's the balance. We had, you know, we knew Tom, Tom Thumb was paying $20 a foot in 20,000 feet. And so right. we took that and cut that into, we took our storefronts from 62 storefronts to 88 storefronts. So it's a much more interesting shopping experience because when Tom Thumb was there, it was one long block of just a solid front. Mm -hmm. And now we've got, I think it's eight different storefronts carved into that. And it's a much more interesting deal. And, we're trying to get production. You know, we don't like signing 10 up unless they can do at least 3,000 a foot in sales. Did it turn out to be better than expected or kind of what you expected? You know, I don't know what to expect. I, I just wanted to own it. Right. I figured we'd figure it out. Right. I mean, it's that's hard to say. Such but good real estate. You, you can't really put on a spreadsheet what you think something might look like. You just got to look at I bought it on like a four and a half cap probably or right. five cap. But on today's yeah. rents, you bought it on like a 15. Yeah. We took sales from 70 million the year we bought it. This year we'll do over 400 million in gross sales for the whole bunch. Right. The other thing is we got rid of all the office tenants except for ourselves to just free up. If you're if you're not incremental to a shop to the shopper's experience, we don't want that tenant. Yeah, I think that's. Smart. And so we had an executive suite above Starbucks, which we got rid of because they're guys like you and me that yeah. aren't shoppers that are yeah. taking care of my parking. So that's why we put Park House on top. And that, that was another thing that moved the needle for us. You know, non-credit, 
startup. A great experience. Great experience. We knew John Scott and Brady Wood well. We knew yeah. they could perform. Yeah. So if we were a national REIT or a big, would you put a park house up there? It's no. 20,000 feet taking yeah. that risk? No. no. But we were willing to gamble yeah. because yeah. we knew the guys personally and we knew they could make it work. Great move. One, you know, one of the things I, I, I thought was very uh, also creative is when COVID hit, you immediately started working on your parking lot. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a good story. So in March of uh, just 2020, right? you know, the world was closed down. I was I walked to work a lot of days. So I was I walked up here and not a car was in the parking lot. I was like, you know, we've been talking about paving this parking lot. So we called the town and said, I'll never get another opportunity like this. And they said, go for it. And so the town was very supportive and worked with us on permits and stuff. Our hardest problem was getting the brick because the brick factory closed down. So we had to get brick from a lot of different places. But the reason we had to dig it up, this center was open in 1931. And all they did was overlay the parking lot. So mm. it was about two feet thick of overlays yeah. for, you know, 85 years. Ripped it out. We put in all new underground utilities, new electrical lines. We got all that done. Now I need another pandemic to finish the south side <laughs> between the casino and the other side. Because we, we've got the brick. In, you know, and we're just waiting for the time to do it. And do we do it in strips? I'll never get another chance to close that whole side. Well, and it seemed like you got them in here, like from idea to activity in weeks. It was quite pretty quick. Yeah, we started, you know, mid-March. We're done by mid-July. We got after it. But everyone knew we had to get it done. Right. And so I was here every day just, I mean, right. you know, it's construction. You just got to pound, right. pound it out. But we wrote, we got rid of all the curbs. It made wider sidewalks. We put in all new trees, new irrigation systems. It's just, it's spectacular. It's beautiful. Yeah. Okay, restaurant business. How'd you get in the restaurant business? I was young and naive. Yeah. <laughs> Best way to get in any business. I Again, like the village, I had no, no uh, thoughts of ever being in the restaurant business. And one day I, I was a customer of Mia's on Lemon. This is 1990. I was 30. Yes. And... Uh, the Miko Rodriguez sure. was the uh, was my waiter. His dad was in the kitchen and his mom was in front. The original Mia is not the one that people know of today, but the original one was next to a fish store yeah. up and it wasn't as big as a conference room. Right. And Miko called me one day and said, hey, you know, I want to go in the restaurant business. I was like, well, why? He goes, well, my parents keep firing me and then rehiring me and firing me and rehiring me. I, I don't want to get fired ever again. So... He came over and we leased some space at Preston Forest and opened the first one for $77,000 in 19, June 6, 1991. And uh, that store is still there today. We've expanded it now probably five times. Now I can't build one for less than a million and a half. Right. I don't know what happened. Right. And what we did on Mikasina that made it different, because, you know, so many Mexican food restaurants in town. And I give this to Mika's brilliance because... The thing he didn't like about Mia's and Mexican restaurants at the time is you used to get the ice, ice tea in those huge plastic tumblers. Right. You usually got it served on plastic plates. You had a paper napkin. Right. You had a plastic tablecloth. Right. And all things. Just imagine. Do a better yeah, experience. Everything was kind of a, so he was like, let's let's serve the same food. I mean, quality food. Better experience. But on China. Yeah. And on knives. And so. Yeah. One thing on my kids, we always, I don't care what restaurant we ever go into, there are three things they have to notice and tell me about when you go in there. What's the temperature like? What's the lighting like? What's the music like? 
Those three things will determine whether you're going to like that experience or not before you even sit down. And just think next time you go to a restaurant, if you walk in and it's bright lights, you go, I'm just not going to like this. Right. Or you even sit down and you go, I got a nice glass. I got nice silverware. I have nice china. Mm-hmm. You're, I'm serving you enchiladas on incredibly expensive china. Well, for some reason, it tastes a hell of a lot better than it did if it was served on a plastic plate. It's all plate. about the experience, right? And then, and then our margaritas, which is Miko's invention, the Mambo Taxi and all that, kind of right. became a legendary status. And so, anyway, open present Forest, a year later, we got an opportunity to come in the Hong Park Village. What year was that? Story. What year was did you start the first one? You remember? 1991. Okay. June 6, 1991. Okay, got it. All right. February 93, we opened Holland Park Village because Los Caros had been there for years. They had kind of put it out, you know, who wants the space? They weren't going to spend any money on it. Everybody else wanted a tenant finish and they weren't willing to give any. And so we were willing. Yeah. I think the Millers looked at it and go, well, if they're willing to spend a bunch of money on it and it doesn't work, well, the next guy will charge you more rent for it. And that opened and people don't unless you've been going for a long time, you know, it's been expanded three times. You know, we built the monkey bar on the roof and yeah. the side and also, yeah, it's awesome. And now that, you know, that restaurant will do eight and a half million dollars this year, which is in the restaurant numbers is a huge number. So anyway, so that was number two. And then we slowly started to expand off that. And they're now 27 me casinas. And, no and how, how much, how far outside of Texas do you go with me? We have one in Tulsa. And we failed in Atlanta, we failed in Houston, and we failed in D.C. And why do you think? Did, well, is it Tex-Mex? That, I yeah, mean, you know, people they, have different taste profiles. Right. If, if you think of taste profiles, the only thing that really works nationally is Italian food, yeah. Chinese food, yeah. and steak. Right. Barbecue doesn't travel. No, it doesn't. In the Southeast, it's a different kind than it's here. Right. And so there are a lot of different taste profiles. Well, even Italian food. You know, Dallas isn't a red sauce Italian market. It's not. Like in New York. It's a, right. It, we don't really have any. Time. But I don't bother eating Mexican food outside of Texas because I know I'm not going to like it. Yeah. Right. California, the green sauce is stuff. Oh. So D.C., it was a shopping center that they finally, they eventually tore down. It was a bad spot. Um, Houston, we were in in the Woodlands. And we were a freestanding building in a, in a parking lot, a Simon Mall that was just, we'll never go on a mall yeah. deal again. And then Atlanta was just in the wrong section of Atlanta. Atlanta is a very tough market, yeah. actually, for restaurants. But you're involved with Drake's and other. Re- I yeah. mean, Hudson uh, House, Drake's, Katie Charlie's House, right? You know? And so I've got probably sixty different restaurants I'm a partner or investor in. And, and how did COVID change the restaurant business? And it, did, has it changed your view of what the restaurant business is going to be now going forward? Well, people want experience. They want to walk into a restaurant and feel like they're just not walking into a you know five thousand square foot box. In a parking lot. Right. You know, so they want that unique. So every meat casino looks different. It's a different feeling to it. Our menus, most restaurants have slimmed their menus down by 10 to 20%. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the stuff that wasn't. Gave us a real time to reflect. Our to-go business went from 8% to now it's settled in around 25 to 30%. I mean, because I think early on, like in those CEO calls, you yeah. said you figured out how to make money on, I mean, you shifted to take home. You were one of the early uh, shifters to, to take home. Well, we can sell alcohol to go. That's that's been a big difference. Which is also, yeah. but but so it stayed. You went from eight and it's staying at twenty percent. Yeah, it got up. You know, is to go cheaper or more expensive than people sitting in your restaurant? What's more expensive? A casino bag. That's right, bad. That's sixty cents. The plasticware, 
the little packet. That's I would think it'd be cheaper, cents. but I don't know. Is it or not? Is it cheaper? Well, it depends on the to-go equipment. Like we use the most expensive to-go boxes. Right. You know, we're not using the styrofoam clamshells that spill out in your car. Right, right. You know, and if you use the high-end stuff, I mean, it's to-go is expensive. Yeah. And you got to have storage for all your stuff and, you know, move it along. So it's, but it's profitable. It's, it's probably settled in to be about the same because liquor, selling margaritas to-go and those that margin helps to offset everything else. Really, we just sell food so we can sell margaritas. And at one time you talked to us, exactly. <laughs> the alcohol is the money, right? Yeah. So the, one, of the, one of the things, too, you brought up, um, you talked about ghost kitchens. Or, uh-huh. or is, is that still something that you think is on? Or do you, I kind of feel like we're going back to normal. Do you think we're going back to normal after COVID? Yeah, we are. The consumer is expecting a lot more from delivery. Got it. From pickup. And restaurants like Albernay's that weren't doing any before, you know, everyone has kind of figured out. I use Al as an example because I was just with him and he was telling me what they're, you know, they've cut it to just a much slimmer. You can't order the entire Albernay's menu just on takeout. On takeout, a limited view. But you couldn't do that before. Right. And so people like that. So that's been a big, big change in our business. You know, outdoor seating is big. People love that. Right. And that's become... That'll never change, right? You're going to keep that up. Well, no, the town made us take it out here in the village and because uh, we it's not zoned. It's Even bad. though we did it for a year and a half, we wouldn't have to go through a zoning uh, change. So, Are you going to do that? Try to? Sure. Anybody yeah. out there wants to support us, I'm feel in. free to call the town out of the park and exactly. uh, put your vote in on the petition. Well, and you're also involved in Drake's, right? Yes. Yes. Now, That's, are you just an investor there, or are you? How do you I'm know? on the board of Vandalay, which is Hunter right. Ponds, and we've got Drake's, Hudson House, I think East Hampton. I've been really impressed with those. guys. We're opening a new one across from. I have the shopping center at Hillcrest and University. Where yeah. It used to be Compass Bank. Yeah. And I bought it with a cup with Stephen and Corey Duhon, and we cut it into like five tenants. We had a biscuit bar at one end, which went out, and we're doing a restaurant there called DL Max. That'll be the the best sellers from all of Hunter's restaurants, the pizzas, the pastas, and stuff. And that opens next month. Awesome. So that'll be interesting to see how that does. So right across from the law school, SMU Law School. Right. So I have fun in, in these deals. Like Katie Cho Ice House was my best friend from high school and, you know, came to us and that was an old bombed out building and, you know, back that. And I mean, he's going to do 15, 16 million dollars this year out of a, Unbelievable. You know, selling beers and burgers. I got a chance to invest in Drake's and I, I was, I've been really impressed with how they, they you also, yeah, I am. yeah, how they, uh, actually I put my kids trust in them, yeah. my two kids, but, uh, how they maneuvered through COVID. I thought they were really thoughtful yeah. in what they did and how they ran their business. So he's doing another one in Hollywood. I saw that one. I'm going to do that one too. So anyway, he's, Hunter's got a very good model and then Doug Brooks and myself are kind of, not really board members, but more mentoring advisors, I guess. Okay, so you got a lot of young people going to listen to this podcast. So when you were getting started, you had all these big ideas, your your uh, Coke machines. I love the, the entrepreneur spirit mm-hmm. you have. Mm-hmm. Best advice you could give a young guy? Because I have all these young people come to me. They They have lots of wants and goals, but no money. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Any advice you can give anybody, like I always tell them, I think it's relationships. You got to try to meet the right people. You want to get on as good a team as you can to get to build your resume. Because I think 
young people, it's hard for anybody to give them any money, mm-hmm. you know, any significant money. But how do, how do how does a young guy get started as an entrepreneur in this business? You have any any recommendations? Well, first thing you got to realize, from a guy who paid his way through college, is failure is not an option. Right. Okay. Can't give, it's not over until you quit. Yeah, and there are a lot of people <laughs> that can look at something and go, "Well, life's been pretty good. I've had my parents pay for everything. I'm going to go start my business. If it doesn't work or something." They just walk away. Right. You just think, oh, I walk away, go do something else. Not realizing I've had businesses I've invested in. They've been failures. Yeah. I've lost a lot of money in them. They have not worked. But we ran that ball out, you know, all the way because you have no way. If you don't have that mindset, A, that's a problem. Two is you got to find where your passion is. And as an investor, and you've invested in a lot of deals. If someone comes in to pitch me something, and part of the passion is knowing everything about what they're trying to get you to go into. If a guy wants you to invest in, you know, he's coming up with a new fashion magazine. And why? Well, because I get to hang around a bunch of models or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. That's not why you do it. Right. You know, I mean, I'm, there are just so many crazy um, ideas out there that come up with. But you got to have the passion. You got to realize you can't fail. And if an investor thinks failure is a walk away for you, right? they're not going to invest with you. And the last is the best city in the world to be in is Dallas, Texas. Totally. Because people are sitting here willing to invest in you. If you're honest, you're transparent, can't tell you how much young people got to understand. You got If you have tough news to deliver, you deliver it. Immediately. And if you don't, it just gets worse. Right. Because the truth will always come out in the end. And if you think, you know, you were working on a big deal and it went bad because maybe you did something wrong, you just got to admit up to it and, yeah. and they'll look at it and go on. But we're in the business of betting on things that we think are going to be well. You built things before you thought were going to be your big homer and they weren't. You right. got other stuff you thought was going to do okay and ended up being the homer. Right. You just don't, don't right. know but you got to have the passion. So what's your view of, uh, we both are very bullish on Texas and yeah. Dallas. Like Dallas, next 10 years. And what about our country? How do you feel about our country? Well, first I'll start with Dallas in the Metroplex. The most important thing we can have here is good city government. Totally. And that means having the ability to get new building permits downtown, not being any of the BS they get in northern cities where people have to slip somebody some money to get a, a permit to do this or that. Good, clean government is something Dallas has always had. Yes. And is a massive competitive advantage, especially when you talk to these companies that come to Dallas, they just can't believe how easy it is to build stuff and you get it going because it's done on the merit system here and done on. It's awesome. And so that is the important thing to keep good, clean government here. And obviously taxes and regulations low and, and all those kind of things, you know, on the national basis, I, you know, it's just, I, I don't have an answer. It's just crazy right now. This tax bill they're passing. What business wants is just something that's stable. I want to look out and say, this is what the tax bill is. Well, they keep moving stuff all over the place. Right. You and I don't know how to, to do things. I'm in a bunch of op zone deals now. Well, I read, I think it was the New York Times this week, an editorial, we need to do away with op zones and just go back and just totally wipe out. Well, I've based tens of millions of dollars of investment decision on a law that was out there. Right. If there's a threat to change it, how can you ever invest in anything if you think our government is built on shifting stand and not on a rock. There's no reliability. It's There's crazy. no reliability at all. On that. Yeah. And then, look, you got to look at the money supply has been expanded by almost a third. Okay. Imagine 25 to 30% more money than was here before the pandemic. 
That's what a lot of young people don't understand. You go to our outside our stores here, the high-end stores, and you see a lineup of people going in to buy purses and stuff. It's like it's crazy. Well, this money, because so much money has poured into it. When that spigot stops, it ain't going to be pretty. No. Because then that excess cash that's going in all this stuff and a little extra money to pay a little higher rent for an apartment. So I, I think in the next, you and I have lived through so many. I, I got in business in 1980. So I've been, like I was saying at the very beginning about the RTC, yeah. you know, 1987, you know, all this stuff. The kids today, for the last 10 years, have not seen. They've not seen bad. Bad at right. all. Right. Because even the housing crisis really didn't affect Dallas that much. No. I mean, we kind of skated through it. No. And even through COVID, the lenders were smart. They deferred payments. They did a lot of things yeah. to try to. But, you know, the, the thing is, I'm hoping that some of these tax laws don't make it. I mean, I just think, I mean, if we ran, I don't care what side of politics you're on. I mean, if we ran our businesses the way they're running the government, we'd be in jail. Mm -hmm. It's just insane. And look, for someone to come to us and say, invest money in my business, in my apartment complex, in this, and the tax rates go up to some of these levels, like getting rid of capital gains on our deal, you, we have to look at our risk-adjusted returns. And it's like, why would I bet on this young person's new you know, mm -hmm. widget company mm -hmm. when my risk is 100% downside right? and my upside is very limited because of the tax law? then it's easier just not to invest. So that shuts down investment. What makes the economy run is the flywheel of commerce. When you buy an office building, I just bought an office building and I looked at it, I showed my kids, I go, look at all the people involved in this transaction. Surveyor, title company, yeah, everybody's getting appraiser, right. lawyers, too damn many of them, <laughs> a bunch of them on all sides. We did a lease, they had lawyers on all sides. We had 18 people sure. that all made a pretty good hit on one transaction. Yeah. Now, if the tax law goes up and where I'm not incentivized to sell that property, right? Or, uh, you know, you I mean, ten thirty ones and stuff. It'll it'll kill it, our industry. Yeah. It's I just can't see them it happening. But who knows, right? But, but that's the thing people in Washington don't realize is I wish they could come to a closing of a real estate project, and everyone that was involved in that they got a check out got of it, paid. sat around a table, right. even for a simple. 7-Eleven Build-A-Suit. It's feeding, you're right. you're right. It feeds a lot of people and then those people yeah. hire people and stuff. Higher taxes force the velocity of capital to slow down. Right. So one of the things, you got involved in politics, right? Yeah. And if you look at outside looking in, I don't think enough of us get involved. Mm -hmm. I don't. And I think there's nothing more important than the people running our government, right? Because it's everything you just got done talking about. But taking a stand publicly, 50% of the people are going to disagree with whatever your stand is, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of, I think politics, my view is the people we need in it aren't in it because they don't want to put up with it. If, well, if, it's not fair. If, you, if you're in an outward facing business, and you get involved with somebody. I mean, you'd have I, for, me, Casina, in Taco Diner. I was involved in the Trump campaign. You know, in sixteen, yeah. People started demonstrating my restaurants. I'm like, you know, you're you're not hurting me. You're hurting him. You're hurting my waiters and my cooks and those people because they're not getting business, right. which means you can't use them. So it's totally. And I'm just working. It's not. I'm working for 
I haven't made any public statements or done all these things. No, so no. if you're any outward facing business, you can't take a political stand because you get attacked. Right. Unfairly, but the attack really on you, it's on all the, I have 3,000 people in my organization. So, you know, things slow down a little bit. Let's say it slowed down 5%. You know, you get, that's 150 jobs you lose. Was, was it rewarding or, or frustrating? Oh, incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Well, so the job I had in DC, now, to work in D.C., you've got to be able to drop out of life. So most people can't serve because you can't. Yeah. That's why all these lawyers are in it, because you can leave your law practice and come yeah, back come to on. it. But if you're running a business, and I was fortunate that our businesses are big enough and we own it. Yeah. I can put other people in place, whether it's me casino or the village or my other things. But what I wanted was I wanted a position in D.C. to where I was Senate confirmed, go through Senate confirmation. When you do that, you have to get FBI background checks that are unfrickin' believable on your back. You can't believe how many people think they did something bad in the past and everyone forgot about it. They remember uh, FBI didn't miss anything. <laughs> and so, but getting through the FBI background check, being Senate confirmed, and I wanted to report directly to the president. Okay? Yeah. And my budget was approved by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So when you see on TV people sitting in the horseshoe giving testimony. Yeah. That was me. Right. I mean, I got to do that. And then I traveled to, you know, over 30 countries around the world. And so from that standpoint, it was an incredible experience. And, you know, I think about it every day, how cool it was. You know, it's like if you, which I wasn't, but if you were a star college football player, you think back to that Hail Mary pass for the rest of your life. Right. Right. And so that's kind of. But was it frustrating how politics worked internally? Getting, trying to get something done? Or was no, it No, because what, what I was doing, what I ran was basically the private, government's private uh, investment platform. It's called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Uh -huh. And the people who really didn't like it were the far-right Republicans. Yeah. Because they want a libertarian government. The government doesn't do anything. Yeah. So I was pretty well loved by all the Democrats and the majority of the Republicans because I, the Republicans liked it because I turned it into a national security and foreign policy tool for the government in a way from just doing uh, like microloans in countries that didn't yeah. really strategically mean much to us. The Democrats loved it because I was in there actually doing stuff in countries that needed to be lifted up economically. So it was great. When I went in front of Senate Foreign Relations, I really, you know, I got kind of a pass on getting too beat up. <laughs> I did get a lot of hot questions, but anyway... Yeah, that was the cool. That had to be cool. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're doing it for the right reasons, right? I mean, it's it's for the betterment of. Well, and my skill set was well set for it because I'm a deal guy. Yeah, we had we did business in 180 countries, and to really have any influence, if anybody on this ever wants to serve in government, at the highest level, like cabinet position, I was sub cabinet. Yeah. People have to perceive you have a direct line to the president, because if they don't perceive that real or not real that you have that then you, you carry no weight at all because yeah. otherwise they'll sit and talk to you and you're like well i can get that done and they're like yeah if they again perceived or unperceived they know yeah. you can you can call the president up and get something done you can get an incredible amount done but if they think there are layers between you and the president yeah you're you're marginalized. And was uh, when you were dealing with Trump, what, could he make decisions quickly? Was he a decision guy? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I never really had to go deal with him because what what we had was a 
roadmap, which they signed off, and I just stayed within. Just did it within the lanes. Right. And then when I needed stuff, you know, I could call over the chief of staff or something and get right. you know phone call made or something yeah. and get get things done. But otherwise, as long as you stay in your lane and you just stay out of the press. And, right. You know, there's so many narcissists up there that think they need to be, you know, on the morning talk show, the Sunday morning talk shows and all that kind of stuff. They're the ones that the crosshairs are on. Right. Right. Okay. So what's the most visible opportunity you see that nobody's taking advantage of? You see anything out there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Easy. Oil and gas business. We're real big. And I'm, that's not real estate, but. Right. No, I've, 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 been buying, I've been buying a lot of production and current production and. The reason is, I totally you, you know, when, you, when you've been in the business as long as we have, totally the money agree. is made where the money ain't. Right. And there's nobody, everybody. The banks won't loan any money except the kind of smaller, you know, regional banks and things like that. But if you try to go to Bank America or Wells or, or uh, JP Morgan, they've all shut the energy window and they've said, they've come out, Jamie Dime, we're not doing any more fossil fuel loans. Well, how'd you get to the office today? Right. In a car. Right. Well, I got an electric car. Well, guess what fueled that? Electricity fueled by what? A natural gas power plant. I mean, right. that's what people have lost. So we've been buying. It's unbelievable. There's just not much competition out there. It's hard to find the deals because the sellers realize there are very few buyers. And so they want to hold up a high price. But eventually, without buyers, prices are going to have to come down. So, you know, oil is going to have to go back to $100 a barrel. I think it's got to be laid down everywhere. Right. But... Anyway, it's so I'm spending a tremendous amount of time in that area right now because real estate, the problem for us, you're a value builder. You build spec mm -hmm. buildings. Mm -hmm. So you're creating value building it. Buying an existing property on a five cap or something and think you're going to squeeze more money out of it. Okay. It's very difficult. And when right. the tide goes back out, when rates go back up, there's going to be a lot of carnage. So to your, uh, I've just warned, especially the younger people listening to this, this is not going to end nice. No. It's not. And I don't know if we're in the ninth inning or in extra innings or how many extra innings there might be in this ball game. But when the music stops, it's bad. Yeah. And rates only have to go up 100 or 200 basis points to where a lot of these projects that everyone thinks are buying, they're going to add value. Now, we're blessed in Dallas with all the job growth and people coming in here. You own an apartment complex in a no-growth city like Memphis, Tennessee, or a Little Rock, or Jackson, Mississippi. You buy at these low rates where you're not able to push stuff, and you don't have the new job growth coming in. I, that's my view. So your view is there's payday. I mean, we're all going to pay for this at some point. Yeah. I agree with you. But Dallas will probably be less affected than most. But it's still going to be affected. Well, remember, the only thing that sustained us is job growth, new kids moving in the market, Job growth and rent growth. Rent growth comes from demand. Demand comes from job growth. Right. If that slows down at all, um, then these apartments who are rents, and we own a lot of apartments that keep going up and up and up. They're only going up for one reason. Yeah. More people are moving here. Okay. So when your career's over and you look back on your career, what's important to you? I, I, I know you're not a guy that cares about... Uh, you know, you're not doing anything other than what you think you should do. You don't care what anybody, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying you don't care what people think, but I mean, you're not doing it for what they think. So when you're done, what's important to you that you've accomplished or done? Professionally? Yeah. And in your life? Oh, you know, 
I know this cliche is with good husband and good father, but right. I get fortunately with my kids going to SMU, I get to spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. And uh, I love that part about my kids deciding to go to SMU. It's yeah. great. They're, yeah. They're gone, but they're not. Yeah. yeah. And so I love being able to see them. Our, our deal is they have to call us. We're not going to call them. Sustain. And I like to play golf. My boys love golf and they'll call up like after the Cowboy game last night, dad, let's go play six holes. Mm-hmm. And boom, I'm done. So I am fortunate I'm in the part of my life I can make my schedule totally flexible. I've hired really good people to that I don't have to be there. Right. And, you know, things that I'd like to look back to do that I haven't done, you yeah. know, I'm, we're real involved in South Dallas and some things, and I'd really like to see real job growth yeah. for people down there that it's just odd that we can't hire people. Anyway, and you go down there and there's just so much joblessness. Right. And there's such a disconnect. The disconnect's unbelievable. And so um, that's something that else. But I just, I just love, it's just a lot of fun to do stuff with my family. And, you know, I'm not, as you asked earlier, what, what are your kids? Well, it's fun because the restaurant, I can call them up on a Saturday. Hey, let's go to Katie Trail Ice House and we'll go down there and I'll walk them to the kitchen and, yeah. you know, walk around and see how the bathroom's clean and all that stuff. Maybe that bugs them. I've never asked them that part. But... <laughs> Like we walk around the village, I mean, we all have to pick up trash. We yeah. can't walk by if they see a napkin on the ground, they got to pick it up. And like this, and they ask why, and I'm like, because people are watching you. Yeah. If they see the owner of the center picking up the garbage, it's important. They realize that they're paying attention to the details, and that yeah. is the important. Same in the restaurants when you go in there. I, first thing I do is walk in the bathroom and look and be sure the paper towels are filled and the it's not yeah. blown up. Because yeah. but that's why I tell them I go. You've got to have the eyes on stuff. So it's fun to be able to share that with them right. and have them, whatever business they go into, it's the details. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm one that thinks that Dallas is a lot better place because you're here. I think you're, uh, one, a solid guy. I, I have uh, really enjoyed getting to know you, and uh, I love your creativity. I think I like the way you size up a deal. And I also think you're thoughtful. I think you treat people really right. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time today. I appreciate you sharing this information with us. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the next few years going to bring for you and my relationship. But I appreciate your involvement in track too. You've been sure. great. Good. All right. Thank you, Bill. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Bill Cawley and Ray Washburn for their time and the Dallas Business Journal for its support of our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. We've linked to all of our handles and our previous Legends episodes with Craig Hall and Lucy Billingsley in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.